Welcome to Paranormal. This is our eighth episode, and this time we're going to be talking about do transplant recipients take on the personalities of their donors? Now, just a little bit of a personal anecdote here. I am not a transplant recipient, but I remember back in the early 90s, and one of the articles we read today actually alludes to this person. But I remember hearing this person on Coast to Coast AM. She was a transplant recipient and talked about how after her transplant, she began to sort of take on the, I don't know how you would say it, persona, characteristics, elements of personality uh, of her donor, the person who had donated the, the organs that she had received. And it just sounded really, really strange but also really interesting. So I've been exposed to this topic before. I had never read anything specifically on it until we we hit our readings for today. And our readings for today, just I'll give you the quick articles. You can find these on the episode website. But I'm going to give them in chronological order because I think even the chronology here is a little bit interesting. Uh, There's an article by Bunzel and a few other authors. I'll just refer to it as Bunzel called Does Changing the Heart Mean Changing Personality? A Retrospective Inquiry on 47 Heart Transplant Patients. That's from the journal known as the Quality of Life Research Journal. That was 1992. And that article actually takes a very dismissive uh, approach to this, even referring to patient anecdotes um, of this sort of thing as mythology. Next, we have Paul Pearsall, and two co-authors, Schwartz and Russick. And this one's called Changes in Heart Transplant Recipients that Parallel the Personalities of Their Donors. Now, this was published initially in 1999, so seven years after the the Bunzel article, the one that's pretty dismissive, in the uh, journal known as Integrative Medicine. And it was later republished in the Journal of Near-Death Studies. And uh, this is something also that... uh, Dr. Pearsall has a website, and this article has also been reproduced on his own website. And this one is really, you know, a survey of case histories. He picks 10 10 instances. We'll talk about that. And then lastly, Thomas Verney's article, What Cells Remember Toward a Unified Field Theory of Memory. And this one isn't specifically about the uh, the phenomenon of transplantation, but it includes that. It, it's, a, it's a wider article about uh, how memory really can't be isolated to the brain or neural tissue, uh, just things like that. So these are the three articles that, that we read well, that we'll talk about. And again, I, th- I thought that this one was really fascinating. Uh, it, it, we don't have to consider the articles in order, but I, I wanted people to know that we have we start out with a dismissive one, then we get one, the Pearsall article that that's very positively predisposed to this for good reason because that's where the case studies you know are and and some of them are really fascinating. And then the last article is trying to make sense of it, um, trying to come up with well why is this? I, I I'll just jump in this way and, and open it up to the rest of our hosts. We have Natalina with us again, and Doug Overmeyer, Doug Van Dorn, Trey Strickland, our producer. Um, I'll open it up by saying this. I'm convinced after reading um, 
you know, the, the Parasol article, and I've read a, a few other things just that he references. I went and looked a, a couple things up. But I don't think there's any question that this happens. The real question in my mind is why? So I would not be in the in the, the category of the first article that, oh, this is just mythology. This is just, you know, people making stuff up or whatever. Um, I, I think whatever's whatever's going on here is real. And the question is why? So how do the rest of you feel about that? All right. This is Brian Goodell. Um, yeah, you know, I... I didn't know much about it. I'd heard about this issue. I was I came in pretty skeptical, but after reading this, um, I I'm fascinated. Um, particularly the, the the Pearsall article where where we had the various cases. I just I got so absorbed reading those cases, you know. Oh, I know. And um, and I'm sure we'll talk about that. But um, yeah, so I kind of I I became very fascinated and very open to it. You know, I, I think it presents some issues to deal with you know and uh and from where i'm coming like philosophically you know i i think that it's the platonic notion of the the body as a prison house of the soul is very popular even in even in christendom you know and you know this notion that our bodies are physical houses and the soul is inside of it but as i you know as i've studied more of the Hebrew mindset and Hebrew worldview, I have a different view on that that is more like, no, the, the hu- human identity is a totality of the body and the spiritual side of, in other words, we have both a physical and a spiritual dimension to our identity and they're fully integrated. So I, I don't tend to see it as platonic. And so that's what makes me more open to this, you know, than, than I would have been say 10 years ago, you know? Um, so that's kind of where I'm coming from. And that, caused an interest in in trying to understand that from my perspective you know but then that does present some theological issues which problems which we can talk about later if we want to yeah that's kind of where my primary issue with it was even before coming into reading the articles was you know i wanted to say no this is not possible because you know the lord gives us each these gifts and traits and, and, and how can that transfer from one person to another that, you know, I was kind of like struggling against it. But as I kind of went through a lot of these things, I, I, if you take it strictly from the concept of cell memory and the idea that, that specifically memories from the other person could be translated into the recipient, um, if they're just sharing memories and then maybe get, gaining new interests and new insights from that, it doesn't present as much of a problem to me. I will say some of the case studies for me were not very convincing. Um, you know, for example, some of them relied very heavily on um, a person's love life, for example, and previous to the to the transplant, it was lacking. And then after the transplant, wow, there's this new vitality. And I'm like, well, could that be because you had a really bad heart before (laughs) (laughs) and now you have a really good heart, (laughs) you know, things like that. Or, um, you know, I person used to not be very sentimental and now they're extremely sentimental. And I'm thinking, well, because you had this life changing thing happen to you, I think that's pretty normal that you might perceive the world differently. So some of them were not convincing to me at all. They seemed like normal things that people might go through if they have this really major 
transformation in their lives, having a brand new heart. But some of them definitely raised questions to me, you know, even especially the ones with children. Those were the most convincing because, you know, kids maybe don't have the same wouldn't necessarily have the same transformative experience of how of understanding that they received a new organ. So there was a case study where a kid, you know, stopped liking Power Rangers after receiving an organ transplant. And it turns out that they, the donor had a traumatic experience with Power Rangers. Those kinds of things are, are admittedly a lot more difficult to reconcile. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think to be fair to the articles, too, I mean, they they, they do bring up um, you know, some of those other possibilities, but the articles, the, the second and the third one are obviously, you know, on the, on the pro side of the issue. Um, I, but I do think they, they did bring up fairly that, you know, this is a traumatizing thing. There's this sense that the heart is the, is the resident of the soul or the, the thing that holds the soul and personality. And, and so they, they might've been, uh, emotionally, you know, predisposed to think in these terms. I, I think that's legit, mm-hmm. but I, I was like you, I was struck by some of the, the specific, uh, memory items and, and the one with the kid I thought was really, there were actually two, I, th- I think in the case studies that concerned children. Uh, but I'm, you know, the one that you're referring to, I thought was, was quite interesting. And there was the one where the guy who was you know, who was the police officer, the donor was a police officer shot in the face yes. by a guy who, who looked, you know, the, the witnesses or whoever they, they think did it, you know, look like Jesus. And so then the recipient, you know, keeps seeing flashes and the face of Jesus afterwards. I mean, that, that's pretty specific. Mm-hmm. Um, when you, when you get something like that, um, that would be really, you know, it, it's not like, you know, I, I, oh, I just got a heart transplant and, and the heart is the seat of flashing lights and geez, you know what I mean? It, 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 there's just a disconnect there and there, I was tended to, I tend to be, uh, on this issue persuaded more by the specificity of the memory and, and how that particular memory just wouldn't be sort of a stock memory that anyone might have. Uh, yeah. I thought those, those were really, uh, really pretty compelling uh, you know studies this is Godow again you know uh, the ones that were compelling to me were the ones that were sort of uh of course if they didn't know you know if the recipient didn't know facts about the donor because if they know it beforehand then of course it could be self-fulfilled prophecy or whatever but the ones where they didn't know or better yet the ones where they were it was the opposite of what they would have thought like there's (laughs) one where the black kid the guy yeah. who gets the black heart. Yeah, yeah. The, and, and he, he assumed that the kid would love rap. He didn't know that the kid was into classical music. And so he his love his new love for classical music, he 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 did had no idea that it would be connected, you know? And then the other the other example that was, of course, to me was most amusing was the guy who receives the the lesbian heart. <laughs> and <laughs> And, and so, and now he has, a, you know, he feels like, like he's, he's, he, he thought he would have become more gay, but he's actually, oh, right. I can't remember. He, I, I don't know if he remembered that he, if he knew that she was lesbian or not, but the point being was that he wouldn't, he, he, he would have thought that having the heart for, of a woman might make him more inclined towards men, but it actually made him more inclined towards women. But it was interesting. She was a lesbian, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there, there were just things like that. For those who are listening, the the, the case studies are in the Pearsall uh, article that um, you know, the middle one that we read. 
And anybody else? I mean, what were you sort of struck by? Yeah, this is DVD. Um, I started off not really, I wasn't against it, just pretty much neutral. I didn't really know anything about it. All I know is that when you have to sign like your driver's license and uh, do you want to be a donor? I always say no, because I have this horrible fear that I'm going to be alive when they take my heart out. So, <laughs> you know, I, uh, that, 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 that's, that's kind of the extent of my troubles with it. But at, in reading these these case studies, I was struck by the uh, by the other article, the skeptical article, where they actually had some cases as well, but they were completely dismissive mm-hmm. of anything that that could possibly be, you know, something that would happen because of this. And then my yeah, mind also was, went to uh, that's the one where they had three groups. Yeah, you know, yeah. People who said no, this didn't change me at all. Then there was this middle group, like. Yeah, I changed, but it wasn't because of the organ. Then the third group, which was the smallest group, thought that it was due to their donor organ. It was the smallest group, but they had in that first group, which was a pretty large group, that that they were kind of in denial. I actually thought that some of the denial, and and they seemed to write it this way until Mm -hmm. the very end, that the denial was almost like there was something going on, but they didn't want to tell anybody. Maybe they didn't even want to convince themselves something was happening. Mm-hmm. I thought I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, and then they just they just dismissed it. Yeah, that and does and it may have been too much. Way, yeah, that, that's that's just what I was thinking. That's a good way to put it, because it some of it just seemed to be a little bit over the top and very defensive. You know, in in the way that that uh, people talked about it. Anybody else? Any response to that? This is uh, Do. I. I had never heard of the concept, to be honest, when we got the articles and or when you brought up the and it's kind of top of my mind, uh, the whole uh, topic, because in a couple of weeks I'm donating a kidney to a friend mm-hmm. and uh, and I just it was all new to me and I didn't know what to expect. And I suppose if my friend comes out of the surgery, a Doctor Who fan, uh, then uh, <laughs> <laughs> I have some more data. But I I found the. Uh, the case study is obviously compelling also. I, and But the first article I read was the Verney article, which gave me a cognitive framework for how this could happen. And that one just, it, it just blew me away. And so when I got to the article about it's all in their heads, uh, the Bunzel article, I, I just completely rejected it because I was like, well, but the, the issue with the, uh, the middle one, the, the Pearsall article is, uh, they sort of qualified the recipient. If, if the recipient was sensitive then they would, you know, maybe take on some of the aspects of the donor. And I'm like, well, what makes you sensitive? I mean, is it a personality type? Is it, you know, is yeah, it? Yeah, it's hard to know what they were talking about. In, in other words, is, is sensitive another way of saying if they weren't defensive, like, you know, we were just talking about a moment ago, that, that in, in other words, if they were willing to entertain the idea. But, uh, yeah, you can't really tell that that's what they meant, you know, from the way it was written. Yeah, I mean, some of the people were like the factory worker, the white factory worker who received the African American's heart. You know, he was defensive, and he he he's, he was the kind of who said, "Well, I'm not a racist, but you know." Yeah. And, and the wife's right. like, "No, yeah, he was Archie Bunker." But and then he came out of the surgery. Um, not only now he knew he had he received a heart from an African American, and suddenly he's more friendly with African American. So is that just yeah? You know, it, it's hard to know if that's psychology or whatever. But his love for classical music is was really compelling yeah that might have been the one that was the most thought-provoking to me because there was this 
he assumed because the guy was black that he was going to like rap music. And then he had this newfound love for classical music and this boy, I think he was only 17 years old, the donor, he died clutching his violin. That actually made me cry. (laughs) But I mean, that he had no idea. In fact, he would have never even guessed that that could be something he gained from the donor. That's really compelling. And it would be interesting, Doug, because, you know, um, with this kidney transplant to follow up with the recipient, because I think one of the cases was a kidney transplant. I think that was the woman who received a kidney donation and she went from only reading like trashy celebrity gossip to like (laughs) Jane Austen and Dostoevsky, you know, (laughs) like that's weird. (laughs) Yeah, that was funny. I know the the recipient and I are, are we're close friends. We've been friends for most of our lives, and uh, we've actually kind of joked about it and talked about it. Um, but I guess we'll. I said, well, maybe you'll like Lord of the Rings, and she said, well, I really do like Lord of the Rings. I'm like, oh, well, maybe Doctor Who. Yeah, I'm not watching Doctor Who. You know, so <laughs> so <laughs> well, I, I don't know. Interesting, yeah, it, yeah, it, it is, and it's intimidating. It's intimidating for her, you know, and for her family. It's just just to consider. You know, um, I, I kind of wondered about blood donations also, you know, going to the more of the cellular memory of uh, maybe we want to talk about that. I think the cellular memory idea is just it's just really brilliant. I think it it can provide That's a framework. Yeah. For people who even who who believe in reincarnation and they think they have they, they remember past lives. I mean, th- there may be maybe they're remembering something, but maybe it's been encoded on their cells, not. Yeah, like, let, let, like, let's talk about that because that was one of the two sort of, you know, not to me, that's the non-issue because you, you, in in this sense, you know, you, you if you read these three articles, I, there's going to be people that, or that are listening to this. Oh, well, this is this is how reincarnation works. Well, none of these these are organ trans. Th- these people were were alive at the same time. So there, there's no sense of a transmigration of the soul. So then it becomes an issue of, well, if we want to talk about reincarnation, what about cases where someone thinks they are the reincarnated, uh, some reincarnated person that they're related to, you know, distantly a few generations. We'll see that then you can talk about whether cell cellular memory mm-hmm. and especially in Verney's article, the section on epigenetics, which, which epigenetics is a really big deal um, because that becomes encoded information then. That might be some sort of, again, natural biological um, answer to those specific cases. Now, a lot of reincarnation uh, talk, a lot of reincarnation you know, anecdotes and cases, they're, they're not related. So I don't know how any of it relates to that. But, but certainly these articles and this issue directly is not evidence of reincarnation because they're alive at the same time. But if we want to get into the bigger issue of cellular memory, well, again, maybe in certain cases, if there's some sort of genealogical or, you know, biological descent going on, well, you, you know, you might have something to talk about there. Uh, how, how Do you think I'm, am I out to lunch there or is that a mischaracterization or what? But that, that's how my, that's how I parse the reincarnation question that I know would come up. Um, somebody listening to this. Well, I think it's important just to kind of specify uh, for folks who haven't read the article yet. It's just the amount, the sheer incredible amount of data 
that can't that even today scientists are able to encode into a molecule and and the idea that um that the the brain of the cell uh, used to be considered the, the nucleus but now people scientists are suggesting that it's actually the cell membrane and that just immense amounts of data is encoded into the cell membrane and and you can change that amount of data and and actually it can be inherited i mean traumatic events from ancestors can be encoded onto i guess cellular memory this is the, the theory and then just sort of passed down and I, I kind of my mind also went to sort of like generational sins or generational blessings mm-hmm. to use theological uh, messaging but it's like there, there's like a this is the mechanism for that and i just i was i, I guess I, I never really understood how much information is available in just one human cell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really fascinating. For those listening, this is the Verney article, What Cells Remember. And I'll just give people the, the headers uh, in his article. So he, he'll, let me, let me just get a little excerpt here. Um, he says here, um, the accepted, this is from the abstract, the accepted neurological dictum is that memory resides in the cortical neurons of the brain. Evidence from studies on genetics, epigenetics, organ transplants, immunology, unicellular organisms, planarian flatworms, nanocomputers, and clinical psychology is cited here in support of the hypothesis that memory can also be stored in all the cells of the body not just nerve cells. And he goes through each one of those. And again, this isn't, I, I, I don't know why I'm, this term is sticking in my head, but a lot of this, especially with the organs and, you know, you brought up the blood is really about how the blood, you know, naturally the heart is the pump for that. And that, and, and it circulates the blood and not just blood cells, but, but lots of other cells either get circulated or saturated with blood, you know, every cell, in some way, and and you have this sort of cycling from the heart throughout the body uh, continually, and and so there there's this idea of this flushing or cycling or I, I can't remember what the term they actually used for it in, in some of the articles, but but that if if these cells even if it's just blood and, and of course Vernie is saying it's it's more than just blood, but let's just say for the sake of illustration, even if it's just blood. That's going to reach just about everywhere, you know, in every cell in the body at some level. And so if information is stored on a cellular level, that would account for memory being stored at at some tiny, 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 tiny level everywhere in the body, which, again, when you think about the biology, and none of us are biologists here, but I think it's clear enough that when you think about it, it's like, well, that kind of makes sense. You know, it, it, you know, why wouldn't it be that way? If there's information stored, it would sort of wind up everywhere. Um, and the epigenetics thing is, is a big deal. Again, how, you know, we're more than just, you know, our, our own DNA, but, you know, epigenetics, of course, you know, transcends, you know, the, the, the you know, the coding in, 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 a, in a particular respect. Um, that things can get rewired or wired in new ways, and then that gets transmitted. And if, and again, if 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 you can store memory, 
and he uses the analogy of of nano you know nano computers nano chips nano machines um, if you can store information at at that pardon the poor word microscopic it's even less than microscopic level then this just seems reasonable so i yeah i found the verney article very interesting uh, as a offering a number of possible reasons why this is and that but that also brings up the re are you receptive or not to some extent uh, going back to I, I can't remember which which one of you raised it i don't know if it was brian but um, the, the Pearsall article talks about how the drugs that are given to, to transplant um, patients, people have different reactions to those. And, and possibly the, the greater recept, receptivity that the body has to those drugs actually sort of loosens it up. It, it enables this kind of cross-information thing to happen as opposed to you know rejectors. But I don't, I don't know if we want to get into that or Mike, not, but it was interesting. Mike, I thought that I thought that they were maybe this my memory. Maybe I have some bad mem memory cells going on here, but mm -hmm. I thought that they were referring to the drugs as suppressing, suppressing. the the memory transference because since the immu immunology system, uh, in terms of scientifically so far, mm -hmm. uh, most scientists believe that memory only resides in the central nervous system. I think it is, and the and the immunology. That's the only two systems they've been able to, you know, prove. I guess, and so there. I thought that they were saying um, that the suppression of drugs actually suppresses the memory transfer awareness or something. Well, Am I, I wrong? I no, I, th I think they do say that, but I, I read it as, as working both ways, that different mm. drugs react oh, differently right, right. with different people. But yeah, I mean, that I think they saw it both as a problem and a possible, you know, well, might this have something to do with it on the other side yeah. too? But Yeah. One of the, the Pearsall article, just a quick quote, that the rejection process might not only reflect rejection of the material comprising the cells, but also the systemic information and energy stored within the cells as well. I found that really interesting. That's yeah. That made me think. Well, if if there isn't rejection, if 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 the if things just sort of go the way they're supposed to go, um, you know, I, I read it in light of a rejection sort of hermeneutic there that 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 was their issue. But you know, maybe not. Maybe maybe they're maybe they're only arguing one direction there. I'm not sure. But it seemed like the drugs were a factor, you know, one one way or the other. Well, that's how the doctors typically uh, explained away the, the sort of the changes in personality. Well, it's just that's just a side effect of the drug, mm -hmm. you know. Within <laughs> a, it's in Bernie. Uh, this is great. Another great quote that uh, certain scientists follow a long tradition of rejecting scientific advances that are different from their own. <laughs> yeah. I kept yeah, thinking of like, a bit of a diss. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I thought of uh, that goes for certain Bible scholars too, actually. Mm. <laughs> yeah. That was, a, that was a bit of a swipe, yeah, but I, you know, the, yeah, you know, that's not illegitimate. If I, if I didn't learn it in school, then it can't possibly be true. Mm-hmm. But don't you think, uh, not to go too far backwards, but I'm kind of hung up on this idea um, in the Verney article about the genetics and epigenetics, because those of us with a Christian worldview who might have people approach us with questions and challenges about certain spiritual things, 
I think one of the hardest things to answer is the idea of like past lives and stuff like that, because kind of you're stuck with just saying, well, I think that person's just making it up. (laughs) You know, what else can you say if someone says to you, well, this person believes to have been experiencing a past life or they're reincarnated. I think this presents such an intriguing idea Mm -hmm. of potentially receiving genetic memory from, you know, an ancestor. Um, The late author, Chris Putnam, those of you who listen to this show probably have crossed paths with his work. Um, He recently passed away, but he was really hung up. He he wrote that book, The Supernatural Worldview. It was a good book. And he was really hung up on this idea of children who seem to present memories of past lives. He really struggled with what to do with that. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if this reading this uh, literature would have really given him an avenue of of explaining what that could be. I'm really, Mm -hmm. really intrigued by that. Yeah, I I think it it explains a lot. I I keep thinking of that scene in the movie Patton when uh, Patton is at the, the battlefield that the Romans destroyed the Carthaginians and he's like, I was there, I was there. And I can, I can see how, well, yeah, one of his ancestors probably was there and it was a very violent ordeal. It could be encoded on genes. And as he's over the course of his life, as he studies military history, you know, certain environmental factors can bring these out, can bring these memories out. That's just, again, that's a framework. It's, it's that to understand it. But I also know people who work in, in like healing ministry and it's like, or, or like in a, especially for emotional healing and that sometimes healing just isn't dealt with until they uh, repent for sins of their ancestors, for instance, like just, mm. I, I can go into detail, but that it would take us maybe in a direction we don't want to go, but just, you know, like, like sins that grandparents did or, or vows that great grandparents made that have land that have somehow manifested in some sort of oppression or sickness um, and the, and so like they kind of like Daniel, when he apologized, when he repented for the sins of his people, well, uh, well, like when healing is released in the present, whenever somehow they repent of their, of the sins of their ancestors. And I, I just, I just kind of wonder if that is a sort of a spiritual or practical application of, of this epigenetics thing. I would think even, even if there's not a, a biological, how can I say this? Daniel was not responsible for the sins of his people, right. but he, but nevertheless, he, he repents. And so to me that, that w- what's going on here is if, if, if we use that as an analogy to someone today, to me, that can have a, a very positive psychological and spiritual effect. In other words, it, it's not a theological statement. It's, it's just coming to terms with my ancestor did this or that, and this was wrong. And I'm, I'm going to look at it the way that, the, that God looks at it. I'm going to call it what it is. And I and and you know I'm gonna I'm gonna conf, quote unquote confess that to God and and agree with Him, you know on this. I think that that can really have a a significant impact on a on a person's outlook, you know. And and you know again without it being a theological statement that sort of thing. So that mm-hmm. that's kind of the way I would I would look at that. And you know the 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 reincarnation thing. I I agree with Natalie. I think there's there's really something here. I mean I I tend to put 
you know, reincarnation into a couple buckets. I mean, th- this is, is one of them that, that, you know, I had, I had gotten a whiff of because of epigenetics, but the Verney article really helps me, I think, think more and better about it. And then there's the whole issue of consciousness, you know, like, like, is there something you know, going on that? So those are the, those are the two sort of discussion buckets uh, for me. But I mentioned you know, a few minutes ago with, with the epigenetics thing, you know, we, where I said, you know, if somebody was a, was a relative and, and the way I said that was it, like a near relative, you know, lost brother, you know, like stillborn brother. And then the next one's born and, and that's, you know, he's convinced that he's this other one, even though this other one didn't have a life, but it's this prenatal thing. And, and by the way, the Verney article gets into prenatal memory uh, and even, even preconception, you know, kinds of things because of epigenetics. Um, but you know, there you have that link and then maybe, maybe a grandparent or a great grandparent, but we have to remember that genetic information can go back a long way. Yes. Uh, you know, it, it, it's not just a sort of an immediate two or three or four generation thing. If there's something to this, which again, the Verney's article, um, you know, and, and this is a, this is not a hack journal. Okay. This is the, you know, the, the journal of, uh, prenatal and perinatal psychology and health. Okay. That, and, and you can tell he has the, the, uh, scientific, the biological background, you know, to be discussing this stuff. And he's, he's acquainted with the literature. So if, if there's something to this, you can't really put an arbitrary stopping point on it. You know, how many generations back is this valid? Cause it's, it's genetic code. You know, it, it, it sort of is what it is. So I, I agree with Natalina that I, I think there's really, this is an area of fruitful, potentially fruitful investigation when it comes to uh, the reincarnation idea, which again, for those listening, the way our reincarnation is classically articulated, it's the transmigration of the soul. Uh, that may not be at all the case, and I don't think it is, but we may have here another trajectory that really helps understand what in the world these people are describing and why. And, and that it, it, it validates, you know, what, what they're saying without, you know, calling them crazy or, or calling them hoaxers or whatever. So yeah, this, we're going to have to drill down on this at some point. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so Mike, you, uh, you brought kind of up the two things that I've been thinking, you, you put words to them. So maybe it'd be helpful here if um, if I read just like the last two mm-hmm. or three sentences of of the Verney article right before the summary, because this is where we're all getting the, the reincarnation from thing. I actually wrote a note on it before we had the show. And then uh, then I want to talk about the um, the idea of consciousness and how that plays into it. So he writes uh, through our ancestry by way of reproductive cells, the things our parents and their parents ad infinitum into the past experience, physically and mentally, may be passed on and potentially affect us. And this is because of cell memory. Mm-hmm. It, it is postulated here that these memories, both personal and ancestral, are hidden deep in the cells of our bodies from where they exert a gravitational pull on our lives, a pull most of us are totally unaware of. Mm-hmm. So man, I think that's why we think about reincarnation when we read that article. Yeah. But when I was when I was trying to work through this idea of memory, I started thinking, I, I think that 
that prior to reading this, I, I probably thought of memory almost as a synonym with like consciousness or self-awareness or some ability to, to put thought to something that's happened in the past Mm -hmm. to express that. Because when you talk about like Alzheimer's, we say people have lost their memory, but they really haven't. If this is true, the memory is stored in their cells that what they've lost is an ability to kind of recall that. Yeah. So when the primary thing that does that is, is non-functional or. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But when people are thinking about like uh, reincarnation, it seems to me that they're confusing memory with like consciousness. So because they have some kind of a memory and let's assume for sake of argument that it's a real memory. I mean, that's a big assumption. Mm-hmm. But just based on what he says here, let's say, let's say they're, they're really remembering something. So now they're confusing a memory with because they, they have a conscious recollection of it. So therefore... Right. It must be coming from a consciousness before that. But he he was talking, I think it was Bernie, but it might have been another one talking about, um, well, I did read the Kendall article that (laughs) we're not even talking about, brutally long article, but this idea that like um, mold, what was it, mold spores or uh, mold slime, slime mold can have spatial memory, and that's Mm -hmm. the language they use. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, That pretty much shows me that memory is not the same thing as consciousness and i i think that's mm. something that would be yeah. worthy worth, worth really talking about the the connection between those two as we hope as we yeah i think i think you're right because i mean i i'll you know I'll, I'll jump in the boat here i mean i i assume that too you know that if we're talking about memory well that you know that's my brain and 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 you know the brain is the filter of consciousness and you know of course a, a materialist would say the brain is what you know, creates, you know, the, this, this thing we call consciousness, you know, but it was all connected to the brain. And, and this again, really, there's a lot of other options here. You guys, can, can I, I'd like to read one more paragraph too, just for, for the sake of the audience too, that hasn't necessarily read these, which I think this is also a good, uh, a, a very excellent description of sort of the theory of at least Verney, and it's it's very close to the paragraph uh, Doug just read. Let me let me just throw it out there. I postulate that all our organs, such as the heart, gut, skin, etc., and also regions in the brain, function as repositories of specific memories, like sections in an orchestra. Each cell is equal to musician is like musician. It's like a musician who contributes its bit of information to the memory that emerges either consciously or unconsciously as a result of some trigger from the environment or from the brain, which is the conductor. Mm -hmm. This is exactly how neurons and all the cells in our bodies work, namely in close cooperation with each other. In neurology, we speak of neuronal assemblies, neural circuits, and feedback loops. It's all about being part of an orchestra made up of 37 trillion musicians. I thought that was kind of helpful. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he has an earlier uh, statement, again, that, that sort of preps us for that one, where he says, it's on page 19, but what, I've, what I have come to realize is that the heart is not just a pump. Kidneys don't just purify our blood. Every organ and all body tissues are composed of individual cells that are in constant communication with each other, you know, and then he talks about storage, memory storage, but that's, that prepares you, you know, for the, for the orchestra illustration, which is a really good one, you know, and that's a great section. You know, it's, it's a really, it's a really useful analogy 
to, to get the point across that he, he's trying to get across, you know? So I, there's a, there's a lot of, for fodder here. I mean, there, there's a lot to drill down on that could potentially relate to some of these other subjects, you know, and specifically reincarnation, because again, if, if you listen to it on coast to coast, or even if, you know, you, you'd have a conversation prior to being exposed to material like this, you're right. The, the conversation would be about consciousness, you know, and, and again, defined as this thing connected to the brain and, and the soul, you know, and the whole mind body issue, but there's just a lot more to it, it seems than that. And I think Doug DVD brain, I think it's the possibly the heart of this is just that we sort of all think of memory in the wrong way, mm-hmm. what exactly memory is. And I can even see it touching on different subjects that we've already discussed on pure and normal. It, for some reason, I think back to, I think it was the EVP episode. We talked a bit about haunting and about how something could happen in a space and imprint on the mm-hmm. space, creating like, um, Hmm. A replaying of of that event because it imprinted on the space. And it just makes me think that memory could be something more like that. Just uh, something impactful that imprints on the cell and remains there, you know, fundamentally changing it and then carrying it on, you know, whether it's through the blood, through the generations, what have you. Maybe we just think of memory in the wrong way. And maybe because we're all spiritual people on some level, we think of memory as a somewhat connected to who we are. And maybe it's more than that. Maybe there's this completely biological aspect or this completely material aspect of memory where it just, it gets recorded, Mm -hmm. you know, and it stays. That, That fascinates me because I think it touches so many different topics that we're all interested in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I, I, I'm trying to remember who it was at the beginning brought up the, the, um, the body as a prison. Which one of you did that? Gadawa. Gadawa. Yeah. Yeah. And then this whole, um, you know, you use the term, you know, Hebrew view of, of the unity. Um, and, and there, there's something to that. I mean, it's, it's not that, it's not that the Greeks, for instance, couldn't conceive at the same point, but they, they do talk about personhood in a, in a bit of a different way. Um, you know, let, may, maybe it's fair to say less holistically or, or not, as, not as frequently holistically or something like that. Mm-hmm. I don't think this, our discussion here should be a threat to people who, you know, want to affirm the existence of a soul. You know, it, it, so if anybody out there is listening that would be a that'd be a non sequitur. They'd be that would be a conclusion that doesn't follow, because th- there's actually a, a number of different perspectives, even theologically. Even if we get away from the from the biology of this, uh, when it comes to what theologians and others call the, the mind body problem, you know how to how to parse the relationship between you know consciousness and and our, our material brains and whatnot. So e- even if we're saying, well, some of the things that we think are consciousness are really, you know, the cells in a body. So that makes it all material. Um, that that's not, you know, that's not actually what what's being said here. You know, the, the the mechanism for how we get memory or how we should think about memory is still different than the proposition that we have an immaterial component to personhood 
Okay, those are those are two different but related things. So, again, for the sake of our audience, I think you know we need to we need to point that out. I'll just throw one out here. There are some even within the evangelical orbit that would not be uh, you know would not create this strict dichotomy between body and soul. They they would be. Oh, I'm trying to remember the the precise term they use. Um, non-reductive physicalists. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> that's that's the way that, that that's a way of affirming materialism, but not being a materialist. In other words, the sum of the parts is greater than the whole. You know, it you know, or, or the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, or whatever. However, you'd say that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you the, the, the parts when they're all put together create something that transcends them, and it, and it. They, they become sort of a, a path to understanding this thing that is transcending the, the, the sum of the parts. So there, there are people who, you know, take that view as well that, yeah, you, you can't separate the physical part from the, you know, the non-material part, but they're not the same thing that you, you gotta, you, you know, you can't have one and have the other and vice versa and all that sort of thing. So for those who, aren't really into the mind body problem. It's not as simple as, you know, having this sort of neat little dichotomy body soul. And that's the end of the discussion Uh, again, but having the discussion doesn't, doesn't rule that out either is the point. Anybody else struck by anything in particular, uh, you know, in, in the articles. Pearsall mentions this idea of energy cardiology which is the idea that uh, information and energy are transmitted between the heart and, br- and brain electromagnetically and that the brain, uh, so the brain processes information derived from the heart. I, I just found that, uh, you know, my, sort of mind-blowing. Like, we are really, comp- like God really created something pretty awesome. <laughs> we are really complicated beings. Yeah, if you learn anything, it's like, boy, there's, I don't really know a whole lot. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know, as, as much as, and I don't want to minimize science because, you know, you know, relatively speaking, I mean, scientists know an awful lot. You know, now, I mean, now we're at the level of synthetic biology and nanotechnology. You know, I mean, th- this it's just fantastic stuff. But the further you penetrate, the more there is that that's just like. Well, I don't know anything about that. (laughs) It's yeah, it's kind of it's kind (laughs) of like we're it's kind of like you know, um, long before LASIK came, you know, the the uh, laser surgery for the eyes. Mm -hmm. Um, Years and years ago, I I actually had the uh, surgery that came before that, which was uh, radial keratotomy. That was where they just took a blade and literally cut slits in your eye so that it would flatten it out, right? And what's interesting to me is you you know, it's amazing how how much great things we can accomplish through science, even with crude approaches. So, th- so in other words, yeah, it can work to a certain degree, and the blades worked to a certain degree on my eyes. But now with LASIK, with laser surgery, it's far superior. And that doesn't mean that the previous, you know, a way of understanding was false. It was just cruder, more crude or whatever. And so, you know, one of the things that st- stood out to me too of the Verney was he says. Uh, the most current neuroscientific view is that memories are encoded in nerve cells and their synapses by the production of particular proteins. Okay, and that makes a lot of sense and that you know explains a lot of things in, in neuroscience, but it's interesting that that's just 
you know, how that's just a crude understanding that may not be very entirely right, even though it works to a certain degree with what they're, you know, with how they're approaching science right now. Does that make sense? I think that's why it's so, I think that's why it's so frustrating when you come upon articles like the um, Bunzel article where it is so utterly dismissive, where he, he just like outright will name a, talk about a case study and then he'll say now as this person is having this fantasy right. <laughs> you know <Yeah>. what I mean? <laughs> it's it was a bit, bit a bit condescending yeah so much for detached objects <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah anything but there hey, b- before we you know we we conclude the episode i want to throw out an ethical uh issue maybe maybe a bit of a of a scare tactic here uh, but if so we're we're talking about encoding information at the cellular level, and, and as you know, Verney's article talks about it's even it's even smaller than the cellular level. You know, the parts of the cell and and all this sort of stuff, and you get down to you know parts of genes and parts of those parts and all that sort of stuff. But that the the encoding takes you know place at a at a very very tiny level, you know, imperceptible level, even to people who are looking for it. So, with all that as a backdrop, what about the dark side of encoding? Because we are at the point now. I mean, you can you can go to graduate school at Harvard and at other places, and get a degree in synthetic biology. You know, where where you're literally, you have the ability to create new life forms from scratch. Um, that in theory have never existed, or of course, alter life forms that do exist. You know, we have CRISPR now uh, with, you know, with genetic surgery, again, for for lack of a better way of putting it, um, encoding information and deleting information at a very, very, very tiny, you know, level in terms of scale. So I'll, whenever I hear you know, news. I, I I follow some synthetic biology, you know, accounts on Twitter and some nanotech, you know, accounts because this is part of my novels. I'm I'm kind of interested in it. But you'll you'll come across, oh, we just did this, or oh, we just did that. And I, my my first thought is, oh, what could go wrong? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, that's wonderful. You know, like, and and it just seems like, and I don't want to say nobody's thinking about what could go wrong because a lot of people are. But if you're talking about the ability to encode information that can last and span generations, oh, I can think of lots of things Mm. that -hmm. could go wrong. Mm -hmm. Lots of things that could be encoded. So let's let's just throw that out. Well, I I also think about, gosh, if traumatic events or like maybe sin, for instance, in my life can impact. I mean, does that change? me and can that impact my ancestors you know not just not just like in, in the lab but just in life you know the, is there a, is there a generational component to my behavior and you know is that is that why like like the 10 commandments for instance if you live according to that way that then your your ancestors are going to be better off than if you don't live according to the 10 commandments right. you know and, and you don't want to be fatalistic yeah, right Right. The more you understand about epigenetics and these other things, you realize that genetic determinism is a myth. 
Right. Okay. There, there, there's just their environmental factors. There are, there are factors that go long, you know, on, I mean, in other words, where does the data come from? It comes from lots more sources than you would think it would come from. So you might identify a bad trait somewhere in your family history and you think, well, that's going to determine that I'm going to do that. Well, there's lots of other genetic information that, that is part of you that counters that. And, and, you, and you have to have, like your, the quote that, that we read from Vernie, there, there are triggers. You know, there are things that blunt it. There are things that, that arouse it and excite it, you know, all that sort of thing. So we're not talking about determinism here, but, but go ahead, you know, what, with what you well, were. Well, I just, the, the yeah, because you can always change. That's what salvation is about, is, is God totally renewing you, re- remaking you. I mean, it gives new meaning, this whole reading these articles, to, you know, renew your mind, be not conformed, right, to the world. Um, but I, I just, before we talk about sort of the transhumanism, which which is you know, looming in our generation, probably. Uh, I'm kind of curious if, if in the lab, you know, we live in a, in a time where they'll be able to grow these organs, you know, maybe clone organs for yeah. recipients and will, will genetic memory be encoded on, on those? Yeah, or, where, where's the material coming from? You know, in other words, from what was this grown? Yeah. Like, is it like from if, scratch. Right. Or, or maybe it, a pig. They start with something. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they're implanting pig valves in people. I mean, I just kind of wonder, yeah, genetic or uh, ethically. Yeah, you're asking the question if, 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 if memory, let's just use terms like experience or predisposition or reaction, you know, fight or flight, you know, kind of, if, if all that kind of stuff is encoded in humans, could not it also be encoded in animals? Because if you're not talking about, if you're not saying this is this is the result of only or even predominantly consciousness, that it's something else, well, the animal kingdom has all those something else's, <laughs> you know, because yeah. it's they're biological too. And and it, you know, again, we're not we're not here to, to pump evolution here, but I would think the person who who buys completely, you know, into you know organic biological evolution, you know, that that, that you know I'm related to worms, you know, in some way. Well. If we can observe the the human creature in these articles the, the way we're doing and, and realize that that there's all this encoding going on, well, then all that other stuff is part of us too. You know, I mean, in other words, if you're going to take that trajectory, you ought to be concerned, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, about about things like environment and, and all these other things that that could be part of the, the picture. But when you want to talk about potentially nefarious purposes with this information, I I have a little bit of a wild imagination. (laughs) And I'm thinking of like throughout history, you think of uh, the Soviets, the, the Nazis, the Chinese. There's always this attempt at building the super soldier. And this is what comes to my mind. What if? you know, you're in a lab and you're, you're trying to create this person who's predisposed to all of these specific traits instead of, you know, the, the, I think that the people who think about transhumanism, their mind automatically goes to like, you know, bionic people, you know, robotic type things. What if you could just build, you know, take, take, uh, uh, genetic, traits from different people who are maybe, you know, this person was a really tough soldier. And so their cells are obviously imprinted with 
that and, and, and maybe an animal who's really aggressive and stuff. Obviously, this gets into some pretty wild stuff. However, if you think that there's something to all of this, it, it, it seems to me that that could be something that people might experiment with, you know, and it would be, it could be used for really nefarious purposes. I mean, to kind of create the perfect person for the perfect, for the specific job. I mean, why not? I'm sure there are people who are thinking about these things. Yeah. I mean, even more abstractly, you could, you know, if I'm the mad scientist, I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to create a hundred of these with these predispositions, knowing that the things they do, okay, aside from biology, the things they do to other people will imprint those experiences and so on and so on and so on. Yep. And so, so, so I could take the long look and think, hey, in a thousand years, this will be the result of what I'm doing here. I won't put that into my grant application, but that's, that's really <laughs> what I'm angling for. Yeah. You know, so, something that's for, so forward looking in a sinister way. Mm-hmm. Um, someone if who's you were just, just driven to, by. Yeah, mess yeah, up. Yeah. But isn't that just it? I mean, you, when these people were asked, you know, to give their stories, how many of them said, well, all right, you're not my doctor, so I guess I'll go ahead and tell you what, what's been going on. You know, like like their doctors are just not not open to to thinking about this because well what would that mean? <laughs> they don't. True, there's go- a lot of people who said that. Well, I wouldn't. Yeah, you know, I, they I didn't disclose that, it to their yeah. doctor. That's yeah, I, that's troubling. It is. <laughs> it is. It it. I just think in another you know ten, twenty, fifty years that the kind of discussion we're having now will probably be maybe not the mainstream, but but a serious part of the mainstream. You know, as as these fields advance, this will become like, oh yeah, you know, yeah, you know, boy, fifty years ago people would have laughed at us, but now we know this is true. You know that, wonder, that kind wonder, of thing. I wonder if the Watchers figured that out when they in Genesis six, <laughs> like, hey, let's do this, but in a thousand years from now, watch what happens. <laughs> you talk about someone had a long long term view. Yeah, I mean, you when you when you get into you know things like that, and just even even something on the positive side, like like you know the book of James talking about sin and its relationship, you know conceived in the flesh and all that kind of stuff, or Paul's placement of you know our sinful impulses in the quote flesh, you know that it, it's not scientific language, but it it does point to an idea um, that I think you know lends some legitimacy to both sides. I mean, if you have you know, if you have the, the the greater intelligence, you know, we were talking about obeying the law. Well, the result of obeying the law and doing what God wants you to do, that's going to have a cumulative effect, you know. So there's the, the push on the one side. Then on the other side is how can we get these, these uh, you know, these flesh, you know, puppets? <laughs> how can we get them to destroy themselves, you know, adequately? And again, there's going to be a cumulative effect to that too. So it, it, it kind of works both ways. And I think scripture, you know, you can look at scripture and other ancient texts that, that, that show the forward thinking, or at least you, you look back on those texts and you can see how, again, if you assume we've got a, a supernatural intelligence on both sides, that this would have been a tactical thing 
that had merit, you know, that, that was useful. So yeah, that's, an, that's interesting, you know, to even think about how, again, a, a supernatural intelligence would, uh, mm-hmm. would be ahead of the game, so to speak. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and that becomes part of, of the struggle, you know, that, you know, we experience that is just part of the, the theological epic, you know, that, that we know as the Bible. There's just a lot of stuff here, I think, to really think about that, you know, gives us gives us a good um, good touch points, you know, to drill down on, you know, on later in future episodes. Have you guys seen this? Uh, apparently, sometime later this year, there's <laughs> there's a guy who is going to uh, undergo the world's first head transplant. Is that the Russian guy? Yeah, the Russian yeah. guy. Yeah. Mm. yeah, I've heard a little bit about that. He needs to read C.S. Lewis's uh, <laughs> that hideous, that hideous strength. strength. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Again, what could go wrong? You know. Yeah. What could go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> this is awesome. Well, what could go wrong? <laughs> yeah, that'll be interesting. When that did did, did uh, what you read give give a date for that like is, is can, can we do some planning there <laughs> yeah. no i know it's some it said sometime later this year but they didn't give a date so yeah <laughs> yeah well hope, hopefully that'll just be better than that one x files movie that was doing the same thing i just well, I hate that film. <laughs> it's, it's hard to make me not like Mulder and scully but that just about pulled it off any final thoughts on this one i i, I thought this was the, the readings were really, really quite stimulating. Again, lots, lots of stuff to think about that's really, um, I think, potentially important for other topics. But any yeah. final thoughts? I guarantee that this episode and the research we've looked at for this episode is something that's going to come up over and over again in future topics. We'll be able to relate a lot of it back to these ideas. Mm. I really can see that. Yeah, I, I would. I just can't imagine it not doing that. Mm-hmm. It's been encoded on our cellular membrane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> yeah, thanks you know, for that. You know, the mind-body problem that you brought up earlier, it's th- this actually, these articles have kind of, they've kind of bothered me a little bit. Like, I'm, it makes me more hesitant to, to donate. And I'm not, I'm not sure why that is. Like, I know that if I was to give a kidney like Doug is going to be doing, my soul wouldn't go into another person. But just the the implications of thinking that my uh, my memories are in they're they're scattered throughout my body, and other people's are too. That if I was to have you know to give something or to receive something, it's the ethics of it are just uh it's it's been bothering me. I'll I'll, I'll confess. I, I'm not sure what you I'm not sure what you to... think, Doug, but. <laughs> You're ready to convert to be a Jehovah's Witness now. I mean, the rubber meets the road for Doug. So I, I'm really actually quite curious as to how this has made you think uh, about what you're going to be undergoing here in the next couple of weeks. It's sobering because I think about some of the horrible things I've done, you know, the sin of mm-hmm. my life that I've struggled with. But I also think about the blessings and the good things I've done uh, in the last two weeks. I've thought about it because the surgery is coming up super fast and, yeah. and um, it's not just you though right you, you have a positive heritage as well right. and, and a negative one but ultimately uh it, it's it's a gift of life this person is going to be is suffering 
my friend is suffering and uh, her kidneys are at 15 percent and uh, and going down and they're worn out and her body has, she is a uh, she's lupus and her body wars against itself and uh, this will give her an extension of life and it's ultimately I you know I think about you know again also with blood donations it, it's just really interesting things are a lot more complicated but um, I, I see it as a, a gift, uh, an honor. It's an honor to give, and uh, I, I've sort of, I've sort of thought about it through like the Lord's eyes. He gave us His whole body, and um, and we get to inherit His genetics in in a sense. You know, we we get to call Him brother. We get to call God Father. So you know, we'll, in a sense, my friend and I will be related, and we've sort of like her mom is our daughter's dance uh, coach, and. Like, oh, you're going to be in the family, you know, and I'm like, oh, is that really the case? And I, I told my daughter, no, not really. But now I'm thinking, well, maybe, maybe we are, <laughs> you know. So it's just, it's a sobering thing. It's sobering on many levels to consider. Yeah. I mean, if, if you paint a, a, a negative scenario, you know, not just, not, not your case, but just generally, mm-hmm. I mean, it, look, it's still not determinism. You know, it is not right. the spirit mm-hmm. of God able to do this or that, you know, in, in a person's heart. I mean, okay, memory's not the not the brain and, and consciousness and cognition, but hey, that stuff's still there. And your thinking, you know, can be influenced by, you know, conversations you have, by the by the you know, truths you read in scripture. I mean, and and the, the spirit's activity, you know, with that disembodied part of us, again, that we call the soul, that relates to these other things. I mean, we I think worrying about it too much reduces it to pure biology, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and if, if you, I think if you, if you just go down that path over and over and over again, you know, it, it does be, it does take on a deterministic feel to it. So we don't, again, that, that's the way I would talk to myself uh, about it. You know, that this is not the only factor. Biology is not the only factor here in, into what, I become or this other person becomes, you know, should I need blood and I go to the hospital and I get somebody else's blood? Oh, he's a serial killer, you know, whatever, you yeah. know, it, it, again, there's not a direct cause and effect there. There are contributing factors. So, you know, the cause and effect, the deterministic thing, I, I think we need to be you know, cautious about, but you know, there, there's something here, but again, that's how I would talk to myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, right. It's just a kidney, you know, there's, it's, it's yeah. a significant part of someone, but there's, she's a whole being, she has free will and she, she, and she has future experiences that will continue to shape her, you know? And it, so there's, there's more to it, but it's the whole situation. It's, it's a sobering thing to think about and to go into. And it's, it's awesome. It's an awesome thing. I don't mean like, awesome. Awesome. I just don't know what I mean. I just mean, it's an awesome thing to go through, to be a part of. And it's, it, you know, frankly, it's a little bit frightening to just, you know, the recovery and everything, but it's, uh, it is awesome, Doug. I have to say, it's awesome that you're doing that. I think it's really touching. And, um, maybe this whole discussion, it, we get to think about it in this way. Maybe we just, when we think about who we are, we just think about it a little bit lopsided. You know, I think we tend to think of who we are as our experiences and our likes and dislikes and, you know, our interests 
you know, but maybe that's not really the heart of who we are. So even if we pass some of that to somebody else, it's not really who we are, you know, our soul and, and all of that is something entirely different. I think maybe it's just because of our limited way that we see ourselves Mm -hmm. that, that this might be something that troubles us, (laughs) you know, but really if my memories get, implanted in somebody else does that mean part of me is in them well not really it just means that my something that i might like now they like it too you know yeah i mean ultimately ultimately as christians we shouldn't look at someone according to the flesh we should look at them according to how god sees them yeah and i think that's in second corinthians 5 but and so it's it's kind of hard for us to do especially whenever we're surrounded by people who are rude you know like well hey but god died for that you know jesus died for that person and and so, like, we need to ha- sort of have a heavenly perspective on on these earthly matters. Yeah, and God is greater. I mean, we, you know, people who are raised, you know, they might, you know, that might be biology, might be environment, or a combination or above. But people who are just extraordinarily anti God or anti Christ or you know, you know, a terrorist or whatever. I mean, the Lord can save anybody and has. We could all point to examples. Where you know the spirit of God has has changed a person, so again we can't lose sight of that. Well, I think it's fair to say that uh, this was a really interesting episode. I think listeners will be able to tell that you know we learned a lot of things, uh, exposed to a lot of new content. You know, we had, might have had inklings as to what this topic was about, but I, I you know, just speaking for myself, it did change my thinking in a number of respects, and I think ultimately. As we've alluded to a couple of times, it's going to contribute to the way we think about other topics. So I want to thank everybody for participating again, and we look forward to our next episode. Excellent. Bye, Bye, guys.